Good morning, Door of Hope. My name is Josh Robertson, and I'm going to read Mark 2, 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus, I just thank you for uh, gathering us here today, and I pray that we would... Um, just take in your word as it's given to us and uh, go out from here and, and just be a reflection of your beauty and your holiness in the world. Amen. Start with a question. Might seem like a weird one for church. But what's the best party you've ever been to? Seriously. What's the best party you've ever been to? I'm guessing. I don't mean like something crazy or whatever, but like what's the best party you've ever been to? I'm assuming there's some gathering with people. Maybe you'd classify it as a party. Maybe you'd classify it as something else. Maybe a nice little get-together, if you will. Uh, but what is it? You can think of a few come to mind for me. There's some with people in this, in this very room that I can think of. Man, there was just such a, t a sweet time of joyful celebration. Uh, nobody got too wild, uh, but we were enjoying one another's company. It was so fun. It was sweet. It went late into the night. It was just, just joyful, just celebratory. A good party taps into something profound about the way we were created, the joy of a life lived in harmony with God and with neighbor. And um, if it's true, as God said in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. It is then deeply good for humanity to be in genuine community, oriented around God himself. I'm assuming, I don't have the scripture reference to back this up, but I'm assuming the Garden of Eden, before the injection of sin and evil and sickness and death and discord, was the most celebratory, joyous time yet on earth. <laughs> I, th I think that was probably the case. Um, well, I'm Cameron, um, and we're, we're continuing our exploration of the life and ministry of Jesus through the gospel according to Mark. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you, you know this is, we're now, we're months into our time in Mark, and we're just continuing to re come to this ancient book, and it is an ancient book. It's easy to forget that. You know, I, I often say, like, you know, kind of Christian pop culture it can, it can dull us to the fact that what we're doing here isn't kind of like a modern American invention. We're, we're tapped into a tradition uh, that goes back a couple of thousand years, a couple of millennia, to this ancient Jewish rabbi, Jesus, uh, who was more than that, uh, who claimed to be more than that, whose disciples saw him as more than that, and they, they wrote about it, they recorded it in these ancient texts that we open up uh, 2,000 years later. Um, to, to get at who was this guy? Who was this Jesus? Was he worth following? And if he was, how do we do it? What does he ask of us? What does a life of discipleship to him look like? Uh, 
Uh, so we, we have another passage today from Mark, which, uh, which Josh read for us. Um, so we read the passage. I'm just going to revisit it. We're going to look at first verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people, the people came and said to him, so saying to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. And last week we had another one of these why questions. Hey, they were asking Jesus' disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with people like this, specifically the tax collectors and the sinners? Now we have a group of people who's asking another why question. They're, they're, they're constantly observing Jesus and they don't get it. They're like, why does he do this and not that? Why does he sometimes seem to be one of us and sometimes he's doing something that's totally kind of off of our radar? Here's another one of those. John's disciples fast, the Pharisees and their disciples fast, but Jesus, your disciples don't fast, is the question. Well, I'm, I'm assuming everyone in this room knows a little bit about fasting. Um, it's, it's voluntary going without food for a set amount of time. Um, in their day, it was usually from sunup to sundown. And today, you'll hear people talk about fasting from all kinds of things. You might fast from social media or TV or uh, whatever. Um, but it was, it was narrowly and specifically focused on food um, in their day. Um, the Mosaic Law, if you go back, you read Leviticus, you'll find that, that there was a fast required at once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So every year, observant Jews were expected to fast for, for the entire day at one day a year. Uh, it, and this one was 24 hours on the Day of Atonement. And fasting was this solemn act directed at God. It was, it was usually joined with prayer, but it was motivated usually by one of three things. You would fast because you were experiencing serious grief and lament. Um, you, you fasted because you were in desperation or in crisis. Maybe the nation as a whole was. Or a penitence over sin. It was an act of contrition. Like, God, I'm, I'm so grieved over my sin, I'm going to fast uh, before you. But the Pharisees, they, they required more than either kind of a, a, a occasional voluntary fast or the once, you know, once a year Day of Atonement fast. They actually had begun requiring a twice-a-week fast. So every Monday and Thursday, the Pharisees and their disciples would fast. Every week, two days, sun up to sundown, they would fast. And John the Baptist's disciples evidently had a similar, like, regular, observable habit of fasting as well. And that prompts the question, okay, Pharisees, they've one-upped Moses' law. It's not just once a year, it's twice a week. And John the Baptist's disciples, they're doing something similar, evidently. They're all fasting. Jesus, why aren't you guys serious about your faith? That's the implication here. Why aren't you doing these more elaborate and serious and regular fasts? Um, it looks as though Jesus isn't as religiously serious as these other groups. That's their point. Um, Jesus is not being religious enough for whoever's asking this question. You could paraphrase this question as, why are your followers so lax, Jesus? Don't you care about holiness? Don't you care about sin? Don't you care about even, dare I say, speeding up the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom, because if we fast enough, if we're contrite enough, maybe Messiah will come and he'll liberate us from our Roman oppressors. That's the question there. Now, what's Jesus' answer? 
Those are good questions. Why isn't Jesus seemingly as religious as all these other groups? Well, here's what he says. Verse 19 and 20, he says, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And that's his answer. Kind of enigmatic. What is, <laughs> what is he talking about? Well, he's saying a couple things. I first want to look at the, the, the back half of, of that statement. He says, there will be times to come when it's appropriate to fast and to mourn. If you read the account, the account of this story in Matthew's gospel, Matthew kind of shorthands it, and Jesus' response says, is it appropriate? Can the wedding guests, fa- can they mourn? Can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? So fasting, in many ways, is just synonymous with mourning and sadness and agony. So there's going to be a time when it's appropriate to mourn and to fast. And what Jesus is probably thinking of here primarily is his coming death, his, his arrest, and his torture, and his death, and his burial. A day is coming where the bridegroom, obviously an analog for Jesus, is going to be taken away from the wedding ceremony. And you'll be sad, and it will be appropriate to be sad and to fast as a response. And more than that, maybe he's thinking, maybe Jesus is forecasting ahead to particularly sad or challenging or desperate times in the lives of his followers, including you. There will be times to come whenever sadness, grief, mourning is appropriate and it's right. And fasting fits right in with those moments. And today's sermon is not going to be a sermon about how to fast. That would be a worthy sermon. Maybe we'll do that one of these days. But, but I, I don't think the point here is that there's no room for fasting for disciples of Jesus. Jesus gave instruction about fasting elsewhere in the New Testament. The New Testament shows that Christians fasted from time to time, and there's no, but there's no indication that it was on this kind of rigid, twice-a-week, kind of serious, programmatic schedule like the Pharisees were on. Christian fasting was likely more organic and responsive to particular circumstances. So, so Jesus, part two of this, there will be a time to fast. There will be a time when that's appropriate. Let's go back to part one. But that time is not right now. That time is, right not, is not right now. Why? Because it's time to celebrate, he says. It's time to celebrate. He says, that, why would the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? If the bridegroom's with them, it's a party. It's time to celebrate. No one fasts while a wedding feast is underway. And there are, um, like scholars point out that the that most Jewish wedding feasts at this time, they lasted for seven days. Can you imagine that? A seven-day party where the food and the drink is flowing. No one was, literally, no one was allowed to fast during this thing. They were, no one was allowed to publicly mourn. No one was even allowed to do really hard work during a wedding, a wedding feast if you were invited to the wedding. It would be insulting. Um, yeah, commentator James Edwards writes that friends and guests had no responsibility at the wedding feast but to enjoy the festivities. There was an abundance of food and wine as well as song and dance and fun both in the house and on the street. And even rabbis were expected to desist from Torah instruction and join the celebration with their students. That's wedding culture in ancient Israel, okay? That sounds pretty awesome. Um, the... Uh, Many of our weddings today capture kind of a similar spirit, but, 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 
but it's way heightened in their culture. And we actually, so I don't know, some of you will know this, there, there's actually two weddings in our community uh, happening in just a few weeks on the same day. Um, so, so, so two couples from Dorvope Northeast are getting married very soon. And I can tell you this, if any of you are invited, like they don't want you to come and be a solemn mourner at their wedding ceremony. I think I can speak safely on their behalf. Like the point Jesus is illustrating here just immediately makes sense. If we think about, think about your own wedding or maybe the wedding you'd like to have one day if you would like to get married. Like you don't want people showing up like dour and sad and like bummed out or maybe with, like, with their laptops out having to do work and they're kind of disgruntled. Like that's not what you want at your wedding party. It's instantly like that is ridiculous. It's terrible. Uh, nobody wants that. Um, that doesn't mean that the average like bride and groom don't care about your feelings or like tragedy that's going on in your life. They don't care about other people's sufferings. It just means that we're all meant on that day to focus on the beautiful, like joyous, life-affirming thing that's happening. Where God is uniting two people to become one flesh and become this covenant relationship that pictures Christ and his church to the world. We're here to celebrate that. That's what this day is for. In these people's day, that's what these seven days are for. That's what this week is for. That's what's going on. Well, Jesus keeps going, and he gives a little more clarity on, 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 on what he's saying here. So he, he, he says, verse 21, he's given now this, these kind of two metaphors. He's given a story, like an illustration about the wedding. Now he's going to give these two illustrations about uh, clothing and uh, wineskins. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. I think we all intuit that. Like, that's a, that's a thing in our culture. You try to repair, like sew on a new piece of fabric to an old piece of clothing, it's going to tear away, you know, if you wash it a couple of times. That makes sense. And then he gives another illustration to make the same point. He says, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If it does, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for new wineskins. And most of us probably aren't that familiar with ancient uh, wineskins like this, but it was this piece of leather, this leather bag, that they would put the wine at a certain point in the process. You'd fill the bag, the new bag, and then the wine would ferment. And as it did, the, the bag would stretch, and over time it would become more brittle. Um, and, and the idea is that if you, if you use that bag up, and then you try to restart that process, put new wine that needs to ferment in that bag, it's going to explode. It's going to be destroyed. It just doesn't work. Um, so it's the same thing as the clothing metaphor. He's just giving us two basic illustrations here. The, the new does not work with the old, is Jesus' point. Um, Jesus' point here is the old way, this is, and this is, this is huge, the old ways of doing things don't fit the new world that I'm bringing into existence. Or we could put it this way. Jesus did not come to patch up the old religious system. He came to finally fulfill it and in so doing bring a new way of coming into relationship with God and finding a place in his family. And the new makes no compromise with the old. This is, this is a bold statement that Jesus is making here. Um, so for Christians, if you're, in this room you're Christian, I want to be very clear, the old covenant, 
let's just shorthand to the Old Testament even, the story of God and his covenants with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it's part of our authoritative scripture. If you're a Christian, the Old Testament is your scripture. It's the word of God. And, and there is deep, important continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Um, we're not negating that, and that's why we will continue to teach through books of the Old Testament here. They are scripture. They are breathed out by God. They're authoritative for us. Um, they're no less the Word of God than the New Testament. But, 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 but this side of Jesus, we can only understand and correctly apply and interpret the Old Testament in relationship to what Jesus has accomplished. And that is hugely important. Okay. So I'm going to bring this to a head. Okay, we've explained, we have to explain some ancient context or whatever. But here, here's the point. Here, here's, I think, the question this story asks of us. And, and, and we're, we're going to just end on this. We're, this is going to be a brief sermon. Uh, but end on this point that I think is a big one. What is the tone of your faith in Jesus? That, that's what this is asking. Is the tone of your Christianity dour and solemn? Like when you think about your faith, you think about your identity as a disciple of Jesus, does it kind of bum you out? Do you kind of get solemn? Oh, well, yes, I, I'm, I'm very sinful, and, and yes, like the, how the world is, is a is dangerous place, and so on and so forth. Um, is your, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You remember the illustration uh, uh, of, of the old uh, monk, Simeon Stylites, the guy who, there was this guy, if you didn't hear this story, he was a guy from church history who was kind of the most austere of his community of monks, and so he decides, he's kicked out of the monastery for being too severe, too ascetic, and he decides, I'm going to show my devotion, and I'm going to forsake any temptation by climbing up on this giant pillar, and I'm going to live my life exposed to the elements on top of a pillar with nothing except what my disciples will hoist up to me in a basket. And I don't think any of us should look down on him. This is a, this is a man of, in, of serious integrity, probably braver than I will ever be. But his conception of Christianity and what it meant to follow Jesus was so severe that it meant, like, I can't enjoy anything in this life because if I do, it might mean that I'm going to, you know, be more susceptible to, to turn on Christ or whatever. It was part of his motivation. And I, I think, I, I kind of wish Simeon had spent a little bit more time with this text uh, because what this is saying, what Jesus is saying to his, his questioners here is, look, or he's asking this, do you recognize, and I'll apply this to you right now, if, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, do you recognize the beauty and the surprise and the grace and the freedom and the joy and the hope and the forgiveness and the mercy and the peace and the goodness and the welcome that's available to you in Christ. Do you understand the radical gift of grace that though you could not save yourself, Jesus did everything necessary to stand in your place and to stand in the gap and to bring you into fellowship with the God of the universe at no cost to you, but at ultimate cost to himself, even the cost of death on the cross. Do you understand that with faith in Christ, do you understand this? Your sins, if you're in Jesus, your sins have been removed as far from you as the east is from west. Do you understand that God loves you so much that he came into this world to live amongst us, to die instead of us, to secure a relationship with us that will never, ever, ever 
end. If you understand those things, I hope that you do. None of us do perfectly, but I hope you understand those things. You know what the response is? To celebrate. It's to celebrate. Our lives with Jesus are not meant to be fundamentally joyless, grief-filled slogs. He says, we are the people who are the friends of the bridegroom. We've been brought into the wedding party, and he wants us to celebrate that reality. Our lives with Jesus are meant to be joyful celebrations in anticipation of this great wedding feast we're all waiting for when he returns. And did you know that? Did you know in the book of uh, Revelation, I think it's chapter 19, probably should have checked that before I started preaching on it, huh? Uh, I think it's Revelation 19, which they talk about the, wet, the, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's how, our, how the new creation is inaugurated, is this gigantic feast. And we talked about this last week with the sinners and the tax collectors, and that's you and me, everyone who is far from Jesus who's been brought close by his grace, seated at a giant celebration table, feasting and eating and drinking and celebrating together to start our eternal lives with the king. That is how things launch for us one day. We'll all be, I don't know how big that table's gonna be, bigger than any of us could possibly imagine. And if you're in Christ, you'll be there. And I'll be there. And the saints throughout church history will be there. And the, the crappy Christians who, who have thrown themselves on the grace of God will be there. And we'll be celebrating his goodness and what he's done for all of us. And it's not going to be dour. It's not going to be solemn. It's going to be the greatest celebration that you could ever imagine. And I want to be clear here, like this, so this teaching, it, it's easy to kind of use this to bulldoze over some really serious things. Like this, I want to say it explicitly, this does not mean that you are not going to experience serious pain or sorrow or hardship in this life. That's, that's not what this is. It's not saying everything's just great all the time. That's not Jesus' point. In fact, Jesus elsewhere promised us that if we follow him, uh, we will definitely experience those things. And some of it will be uh, just because we live in a fallen, broken world where tragedy happens, uh, and some of it will be because we follow Jesus. There will be cost to following Jesus. I suspect more and more and more as our lives go on, it will be more and more costly to follow this king and to be actually faithful to him. Um, every one of us is going to encounter devastation of some kind in this life. Um, and, and if you haven't yet, that's amazing. That's awesome. But it, but it is coming. If you're sitting here going, I've, I've, I've had a pretty good life, pretty easy. It, it's, something hard is coming. It's unavoidable in this life. Um, and it is okay. Jesus says there is a time to mourn. There are appropriate times to mourn. It is okay to stop. In fact, it's necessary to take stock, to grieve, to mourn, uh, to lament, to cry, to weep, to have your heart broken, to acknowledge that, to share that with people, to fast in response. But there is hope in the midst of those things that, that Jesus can actually transform even our darkest moments, that he can take them and he can protect them from the absolute bottom of despair. I think of the words of Jesus in John 16, He said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. 
but take heart, I've overcome the world. When you experience tribulation, we remember, we, we are meant to take heart. Remember, he's overcome this world for us. He invited us into that overcoming. Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or Paul again in Romans 15, when he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Suffering will come, but even in that suffering, he offers us a resource that no one else has. His very presence, his comforting supernatural peace that he's willing to pour out on you. Uh, in the here and now by his spirit, and, and even in relationship to the fact that we have a glorious future, that no matter what happens, the worst thing that can happen to any of us in this life is that we get killed. And you know where we go? To the presence of God himself, received with loving, open arms, if you're in Christ. If you, if, you can, if you can get yourself to actually believe that, that can change everything about how you deal with suffering. But I want to be very clear, suffering will come. And this passage is not trying to deny that. But that said, when you're not in the throes of serious suffering, and whenever you can return to, to, to the promises that God has promised you and all that he's accomplished for you, the appropriate response, I think the normal habit of our lives in Christ ought to be celebration. And I would hope that for you as an individual or as a family, certainly for us as a community, Door of Hope Northeast, that, that our lives together are marked by an infectious joy that when people look at it, and this has become a Christian cliche, but it's true. This passage reminds us, it's so true, that when people look at us, they go, what in the world? Where is this, where is this source of joy and hope and peace and celebratory spirit coming from? How in a global pandemic, how in a country as politically fractured as ours, how in a world with so many devastating, deeply sad conflicts, ones we're hearing about on the news every other day, how do you find this reservoir of hope and peace and joy? How could you find the, the, the ability to celebrate anything in a world like that? We say it's Jesus that we've been saved from sin, death, and hell by the gracious Lord of the universe who, who desires to be with us forever. So may we celebrate. May we, may we party. May, may, this, may Sunday mornings here, and I know it's awkward uh, to get to this place whenever we're, we have habits of being such reserved, like a, a reserved church community, reserved people, kind of a reserved city in that regard. But may we more and more grow that these gatherings, when we're here and when we're in our you know, community groups, when we're just gathered together organically as, over coffee or whatever as the people of Dwarf Hope Northeast, may it be that our, every one of these spaces is marked by an infectious celebratory spirit. May life be a party. That's the normal, ought to be the normal mode for the disciple of Jesus. And it does, it's weird. It does not fit with the old. It's precisely Jesus' point, but the bridegroom is here now. 
He walked the earth among us. Yes, there was a period he was dead and buried for three days, but he rose. <laughs> and he vindicated everything that he said and taught. And then he, he left to the right hand of the Father, but he said, that's even better because I get to pour out my spirit on you and actually indwell you with the Holy Spirit of God. So let's celebrate. There is a lot to celebrate, friends. There's a lot to mourn. But may our celebration run deeper than our mourning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and ask Jesus to make that so in our lives.